that, that, that threat continues to persist. There are, there are still missiles being fired from. Does that mean that Canada agrees with Israel that Hamas has to be destroyed? I think I think they they have a right to defend themselves against that terrorist threat, and and quite frankly, Hamas has to be um, eliminated as a threat, not, not just to Israel but to the world. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. A lot to get to here on this Tuesday afternoon. That was a little bit earlier today. Defense Minister Bill Blair uh, asked by reporters about whether Canada would push by a ceasefire, warning that a ceasefire uh, could only stand at this point to benefit Hamas, that Israel has the right to defend itself and it needs to respond. Now, I wanted to play this quickly. Just moments ago in the House of Commons, it was a week ago today uh, that reports began to emerge about an explosion near a hospital in Gaza and an accusation from Hamas that it was Israel that had bombed the hospital. An allegation that turns out to be untrue based on everything that has emerged since then. The prime minister was maybe a little hasty in his comments last Tuesday in suggesting that it was the Israelis responsible A week later, he has finally commented once again on the situation, prompted by a question from the opposition leader in question period today. When it comes to issues that have such a serious impact on uh, Canadians and on people around the world, we need to make sure we're grounded in facts. That's why I asked our uh, defense experts and our military specialists to analyze open source and classified data to come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is uh, that uh, according to the best evidence that they have, Israel did not fire uh, a rocket at that hospital. So there it is uh, from the Prime Minister today. Now more is beginning to come to light about the horrors that unfolded by Hamas on October 7th as they uh, basically uh, burst into Israel. Uh, through the fence, other ways of uh, getting from Gaza into Israel and went on a killing spree. Now yesterday, Uh, Israeli officials uh, in a briefing for journalists revealed uh, images that had not previously been seen. Uh, Video that was confiscated from Hamas fighters uh, of that massacre as it unfolded. Concern on on the Israeli part uh, that these atrocities are being uh, downplayed or even denied. Uh, But there's no question uh, that it was a horrific attack that Hamas inflicted upon Israel on October 7th, and we're learning more about it. Uh, Global News has uh, an inside story today on one particular Israeli community, uh, the town of Sufa, just a few kilometers away from Gaza, just a few hundred people uh, in that community. And uh, a thorough account of what happened on that fateful day, uh, the attack that Hamas uh, inflicted upon the town, but also the way in which residents fought back. Uh, the headline, The Hamas Attack on an Israeli Kibbutz and How Residents Fought Back. You can read much more globalnews.ca. Joining us on the line here this afternoon, the author of this piece, Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell. Stuart, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Like I say, we, we are learning more still. I mean, here we are, you know, more than two weeks after the fact, but we're learning more about what unfolded in the early hours of October 7th. And that's coming from firsthand accounts. It's coming from videos and and images that have emerged. So how do you go about piecing together uh, an investigation like this? Well, Rob, this this attack by Hamas was really unprecedented for the amount of 
uh, video evidence that uh, that uh, has emerged. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were people wearing GoPro cameras taking part in the attack. It was CCTV footage. Um, people, you know, the victims as uh, they were escaping, they were recording with their phones. Um, so there was there was a lot of uh, a video and. and uh, we're just sort of starting to to piece it together, and um, what uh, what we discovered was uh, there were if you examined a whole series of, of videos that were taken um, that you could actually identify uh, a couple of the Hamas fighters and trace their journey all the way from Gaza across the fence and uh, to the community they were assigned to attack. And it's you know obviously this is a was a huge attack. There were thousands, several thousand uh, Hamas that took part. Um, there was you know mass killings, but uh, just by following two of the fighters, it does give some insights into uh, you know exactly how they did it, um, what some of their motivation may have been, and also um, they basically recorded their own crimes. Well, we've got now approximately 1,400 dead. And so each of those murders, you know, is, is a horrible story in and of itself. But by sort of breaking it down into pieces, we get better understanding of how this uh, unfolded because the sheer scale of it all, it's really difficult to comprehend. So this piece that you worked on, as you mentioned, it follows uh, some of these fighters and we have their video as they go into this community. Now, uh, Sufa is is the kibbutz or, or the town in question here. And it's very close to, to Gaza, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, most of the communities that were attacked on October 7th were, you know, fairly close to the Gaza border. Mm-hmm. There are quite a few, um, you know, kibbutzes and, and towns that are just within a few kilometers uh, of the Gaza border. But the border is quite, you know, it's quite a well-fortified uh, border, um, and I think there was a sense of uh, security for people to live around there that the previously the big threat was rockets that were right. launched out of Gaza at some of these places. But what happened uh, on the 7th was just somehow um, basically a mass uh, breakout across the border. They they punctured the border with explosives and with uh, uh, using heavy equipment, and they were really able to sail through without meeting any resistance at all. You can see on the series of videos that we analyzed um, there was a whole layer of, of barriers of barbed wire and fencing and concrete, and they just pushed right through and without a single shot being fired at them. Uh, and, and they had a plan, right? They, you know, they, they knew where they were going. They knew what they were doing. Maybe they were almost surprised in, in some way that, you know, they, they encountered so little resistance along the way. But there was some very detailed plans here, it would seem. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right, because you can hear one of the things about uh, their GoPro recording is that you can hear their chatter. And you can see before they reach the border, um, they're already arming their weapons as if they're expecting to face uh, defenses when they get there. Right. And they're almost surprised when they go right through. And uh, they did have a plan. You can, When they reach the border, um, one of them says to the other that there's three kilometers to go, which is the exact distance to Sufa. So they knew where they were going. They had a plan. Uh, they were you know, armed and and uh, trained, and um, and they proceeded on. Um, the the difference with Sufa, uh, as opposed to some of the other communities, is that the local residents managed to quickly muster themselves, even though there was only a few of them that had weapons. 
um, they were ex-military, and they um, they managed to get their act together quickly enough to um, to fend off the the Hamas attack with only th- ultimately three people from the community being killed. Wow. Uh, so this is early morning. You, you can tell from the video the sun's barely coming up. I guess it's around uh, just after 7 a.m., right, as, as they're approaching the town? Surround them. And when you do that, uh, we found the road that they took down through Gaza and uh, and crossed the border very easily, as you said, right at sunrise. By that time, there was quite a barrage of rocket fire going out. So um, people were already on the alert that there was, uh, you know, they were heading to their shelters in their homes, which many Israelis have safe houses that they can go hide in. Um, and it was very quick. I mean, they proceeded within a, a very short amount of time to the Sufa. They just they managed to climb in and, and just basically went house to house shooting people, shooting at houses, uh, looting, setting fire to houses. At uh, one point going through a, a man's fridge and taking something out to drink. Um, and they were they seemed quite casual about what they were doing as they wandered um, wandered through the town. It's interesting. I mean, Israel's a relatively small country, but, you know, some of these towns seem quite isolated. So, you know, as the residents start to comprehend what's happening, there was a real sense, wasn't there, that, that help wasn't coming, that they were kind of on their own. Yeah, I mean, the, the the reality is, as you say, these towns are fairly isolated. Uh, and so they do have their own uh, civil self-defense uh, teams. So there was a small team at Sufa. There were only four four weapons in the entire uh, kibbutz, uh, four rifles. And, uh, and yeah, they, they got the call that there were there was an attack underway. There were people crossing the border. And um, they... Quickly threw their equipment on, and they went out and they they confronted the uh, the attackers. And they it's it's quite telling when you compare the video of the of Hamas versus that of the the, the civilians that defended themselves. That uh, you can see the Hamas uh, attackers they're really they're not moving in a very professional manner. They're not behaving professionally like soldiers. They're just shooting at anything, setting fire to things. Whereas the even the, the civil defense team, you can tell just by the way they're moving that they know what they're doing. They're they're being careful, covering themselves, uh, and they managed to pick these guys off one by one. And they held them off for about five hours until the uh, the Israeli forces were finally able to reach Sufa and and begin to just really finish off uh, the, the rest of the Hamas that were there. It's remarkable because, yeah, I mean, there's there's military training that, you know, the most Israelis go through. And so that included, you know, the folks in this kibbutz. But as you note in your, your piece that, you know, there, there was um, like a security team for the town, but it, they hadn't actually really ever trained together. So they weren't really prepared to deal with anything like this. No, they weren't. It was also a holiday. Uh, it was a Jewish holiday in Israel. And uh, a lot of people had family over. A lot of people were tired because they'd been up late the night before. Um, you know, that may have been the strategy uh, of Hamas to attack on that particular day for that reason. But, um, yeah, they did have to muster quite quickly. But, but it is, I mean, there are, there are some interesting lessons when you, when you go through all of this video and the interviews we did with the survivors and the people that took part in, in repelling the attack. Um, 
you can see one that clearly they one they were expecting to uh, have some kind of battle at the border. You know, they were they were arming up their weapons as they were approaching the border, and there was just nothing there. So they clearly there was there were some issues with the border where they were able to very easily penetrate. And um, one of the experts we spoke to uh, had quite an interesting observation too that he believes that they expected to have quite a difficult fight at the border. And when they didn't, and they made it across, they were almost euphoric and didn't know what to do. And um, and that you know that may be the explanation for some of the kind of confusion and excess that we saw, where they just kind of went on a rampage. Yeah. Um, so you know, and also we know uh, from their commentary to each other in the videos that they knew what they were doing. They had a target in mind. They went straight to it. Um, and of course, as I said, they by wearing these cameras, and when when you also look at the CCTV and other footage, you can see, um, you know, despite what people have said, what Hamas has said about the conduct of its uh, fighters, uh, they committed, you know, blatant crimes. They just opened fire on civilian homes. Uh, they shot into homes. They killed uh, a civilian in, in this town. Was just completely unarmed, just in his home, in his living room, set fire to homes, um, all of those things, and and so it really is an opportunity to look quite realistically and coldly at what actually happened, as opposed to some of the way it's being portrayed and spun on both sides. And, and there is a lot of you know frustration, anger within Israel that's directed at at the leadership. Like th this is really seen as a failure at so many levels that that this happened and you know many are calling it Black Saturday as as you know, but you know amid all of that, you know the story of what happened in Sufa and and how these residents fought back this is kind of like a a rare story of success amid all of those failures. Yeah, I mean it is. There, there were a couple of kibbutzes where uh, there were similar things uh, where they were able to uh, to keep them off, and and those are the small you know success stories in a really horrible uh, you know situation. But yeah, there is a lot of anger um, at the government. Um, the the I think at the same time people are willing to sort of put that aside because they realize that there's a larger issue right now that yeah. they're confronting. That you know, I think there there will be people seem to feel that there will absolutely be a day. A reckoning for those who were responsible for that massive failure, um, but right now there's uh, you know there, there, there's Hamas to deal with and to make sure that it doesn't do this again. Indeed. Well, your piece uh, on what unfolded uh, in the early hours of October seventh in the Sufa in Israel. It's uh, up at globalnews.ca. Stuart, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Rob. All the best. That is Stuart Bell, Global News investigator, journalist. Remarkable piece of what unfolded uh, in this one tiny Israeli kibbutz where a community realizes uh, it's under attack. It's on its own. And they fought back. Now, by the afternoon, uh, some Israeli soldiers did arrive in the town. Only about six, however. But they joined in. Uh, so this community was uh, able to take the fight to these Hamas fighters and minimize uh, the civilian casualties there. Uh, unfortunately, Hamas was much more successful elsewhere. As mentioned, the death toll standing around 1,400 at this point uh, as a result of what happened on October 7th.
welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our number here, 403-974-8255. As uh, um, a backdrop to our next conversation, there's a new report out uh, today from the International Energy Agency forecasting some big changes by 2030, that nearly half the world's electricity supply will come from renewable energies. The number of electric cars on the road will be 10 times higher than it is right now. They also see oil and gas plateauing over the next three decades. The demand will increase in developing countries, but start to decline in more advanced economies. So they say this transition is happening and it's unstoppable. So what does it all mean for Canada in terms of getting on board with the transition, but also still meeting uh, the global demand for fossil fuels, which is still going to be there in the decades ahead? Now, this all relates to our next conversation, and this whole project is about starting a conversation. It's the McGill-Max Bell Lectures. It's happening in three cities, uh, three Canadian cities, including Calgary, uh, and uh, Sutherland House, the publisher, is also involved, and it's released uh, the book that our next guest has written. Andrew Leach is an energy and environmental economist at the University of Alberta. He's the author of Between Doom and Denial, which is the Max or the McGill Max Bell lecture happening tomorrow here in Calgary at Studio Bell or at McGill.ca. Uh, Andrew Leach joins us on the line here this afternoon. Andrew, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. So it's it's a book, it's a lecture series. Just tell us a bit more about this uh, this whole project. What we need to know about this? Yeah, you you basically summarized it well. It's uh, the project was a book to essentially backstop a series of three lectures, or you can think of the lectures being three excerpts from the book. And the book itself, I, I started off calling it The Little Lies We Tell Ourselves About Climate Change, and then the title kind of evolved from there as I worked through things that we, we say, like, you know, Canada's a cold country, so climate change won't affect us. The world will still use oil and gas, so maybe we don't have to worry about our industries being disrupted, or government can plan a just transition and make sure nobody's left behind. These little sound bites that kind of let us off the hook from a more difficult discussion. So I take on six of those in the book and talking about three of them in each of the three lectures in each lecture. Right. There, there were kind of in between two two polars uh, on this, uh, two, two uh, very opposed camps. When, and, and both kind of almost feel like, you know, it comes from a, a feeling of maybe this is all pointless. Those who say there's no need to do anything, it's business as usual. And those who feel it's so dire, anything short of shutting everything down is, is pointless. Is, is that kind of the two camps the, the title refers to? Yeah, I think there's, there's that element in the book, and then there are also, you know, whether you, you think about, I'll use just transitions as, as an example, that, you know, we hear two camps on that that are not necessarily aligned with two camps on whether Canada should act on climate change or how much of a difference we can make or how much climate change policies affect our oil and gas industry or things like that. So I think they're not necessarily two solitudes around each topic. I think there are different people who find themselves annoyed or happy with different chapters in the book. I mentioned just off the top, the latest forecast from the International Agency. Not everybody necessarily accepts the IEA's numbers or forecasts, but what do you make of, of some of these forecasts and, and the, the pace at which this transition is happening and how, how it relates to this whole conversation? Yeah, I, I think the IEA is pretty careful to say, look, we're, we're sketching out three different 
sort of plausible scenarios. If the world acts aggressively on climate change, this is what things might look like. If the world sticks with what it said it's going to do or enacted so far, then this is what the world looks like. Um, I tend to look at two things. Number one, you know, what are the changes in the trends? But then how have these predictions also changed over time? So, you know, if you look back to the 2010 IEA report, for example, what's different now from what they were saying? And then for some things, oil, not a huge change from, from that time frame. You know, renewable power, massive change in terms of what we foresee globally for renewable via, or renewable power, electric vehicles. So those are, you can really see when you look at, at older reports of theirs where the real earth-shattering changes have happened. I think we, I mean, we have seen, I think even here in Alberta, we've had the conversation around, you know, renewables that it's, it's expanded, it's grown in Alberta far faster than anybody uh, expected. I mean, is that kind of a microcosm of what we're seeing globally? Oh, oh, for sure. Like we're now seeing, uh, for example, on solar, we're seeing probably more solar installed this year than the IEA used to say, well, we might get in total by 2035. So the scale of uh, the scale and pace of solar expansion, wind, et cetera, has just gotten so much cheaper than people would have expected. Um, and so it's opening up opportunities for cheap electricity in parts of the world that you know, previously haven't had access to to that kind of cheap power, doing some of that here. Uh, and then, again, there's there's we've seen different trends like this over time, whether it was U.S. oil production. You know, for a long time, it was taken for granted that U.S. oil production was down and, and declining, and it re- has rebounded to, um, you know, one of the largest uh, producers in the world. And then, you know, you look at Canada's oil sands, for example. For a long time, there was very limited, very limited positive outlook for the oil sands, and then there were massive, maybe overestimates of the growth of the resource, and, and those have been trimmed back now. So in all of these cases, you see changes over time that tell you maybe more of a story than the forecast in any given year uh, on its own. So what about the notion that Canada needs to, to pick a lane here, pick a team, right? Because there's team oil and gas that, that sees renewables as, as some kind of a threat or treats them as, as such. And the other side is that, you know, if we're going to be serious about green energy, how on earth can we have a federal government, you know, buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline or approving LNG Canada, right, and these kinds of projects? But do we have to pick a lane? Um, well, I think what I'd rather see us do is be honest with ourselves about what we're basing our decisions on. So are we expecting that the world is going to act on climate change? How aggressively do we think we're going to act? What do we think that means for us as a national economy or as a provincial economy? And then, you know, what opportunities make sense given our view of the world? And I think too often we're we're devolved to individual projects. You know, LNG Canada is a great example. Uh, There are lots of scenarios with global action on climate change where LNG Canada would play an important role in that. Uh, But you can paint another scenario, a plausible scenario of the global energy transition, where that becomes a stranded asset, where nobody really wants by, you know, decades into the future, where nobody's interested in producing, shipping, liquefying, shipping, and regasifying Canadian natural gas to Asia or Europe or, or what have you are not willing to pay enough to make it worthwhile. So you, when you get down to individual assets, I think people tend to be too black and white about any individual asset um, and what we can say about their role in an economy acting on climate change. 
Right. But I mean, you know, it's it's hard to know for certain what the future is going to hold. And there are, I think, preferred scenarios or feared scenarios that maybe guide some of these decisions. But ultimately, governments do have to make decisions. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, my take in, in the book tends to be that our government policy should be at a higher level. So it shouldn't be individual facility. It should be what are the policies that if the world implemented say carbon pricing, for example, if the world implemented our carbon pricing regime, would we meet global goals? And the answer to that is pretty unequivocally yes. And so that gives our policies sort of credibility in the world facing climate change and allows our businesses to make decisions about how they want to invest given uh, given that policy regime or not invest. It's not then up to governments to say, well, you know, this project's okay, that project's okay. It's it's letting the market and the price signal sort that out. Right. And two of the issues you address, and you alluded to them, and it, it sort of speaks to Canada's place in the world and how relevant we are, how much we matter, uh, both in terms of our size, how much overall we contribute to global emissions. There's also the, you know, the, the aspect of Canada as a colder, more northern country. So... What do you make of those two two issues or arguments as as they relate to these conversations? Well, you know, I think the math on the 2% of global emissions, you can't get away from that. So we can't stand back and say, you know, Canada's going to do whatever, and that's going to mean there are fewer wildfires or less permafrost melting or the glaciers will not recede in in the National Park or what have you. We we don't have that kind of leverage over the global emission system. Mm. Uh, but I think we also need to remember that, you know, we still face substantial risks from global action on climate change. And, and I think, as I argue in the book, we have more of a choice to say, do we want to set our own course or do we want to have our, our course set for us? So an example, I don't talk about it that much in the book, but I think one that will be relevant to your listeners was the Keystone XL pipeline. In the broad scheme of climate change, it's a relatively small project but it became the center of an entire two presidential elections and a couple of Canadian elections about climate change policy and ended up being, you know, billions of dollars lost and an opportunity for some lost and and for some gained, I suppose, but just over that one project. And so that type of threat remains. And I talk about in the book, uh, for example, one another example, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, appealing to the Canadian energy regulators, say, please don't tell anyone who our insurance provider is. If you tell anybody, we won't be able to get insurance. And, you know, that's a very striking thing. It doesn't matter how small we are in the global context. That's a real threat to a real project that is important to Canada that comes from, you know, that perceived inaction or insufficient action on climate change. So I think we have to refocus it, not to say how big are we in the global context, but what actions make sense for us given where we sit in the world. Um, And then on the other one, the cold country, I think what I try to do in the book is say, you know, yeah, there are a bunch of studies that assess essentially how does Canada do in a slightly warmer than average year. And Canada, because we've got a lot of agricultural land and a lot of tourism, tends to do well when it's warmer and sunnier and drier um, climate-wise. But that's not the same as saying, how will Canada do under sustained warming for year after year after year? So, you know, it's like saying, I like hot, sunny days, therefore we'll all be better off in drought conditions. Well, that obviously doesn't hold. Take it further, you know, how are we going to do um, when we have things like the pine beetle, which occur only 
or which expand in range because we have sustained warming or increased wildfire risk or northern permafrost melting or these things that happen because we have sustained warming over time, those aren't going to be picked up in these studies that consistently say Canada will be either not that well, not that badly off or even maybe a little bit better off uh, because of climate change. So that's sort of the argument I pick up on in that chapter in the book. So you look at these debates and you look at some of this division in, in Canada around some of these issues. I mean, where, where does it leave your level of optimism that, you know, pragmatic, meaningful policy is, is achievable? Well, you know, I think we already have that. And even if you look, uh, despite, for example, all the rhetoric around the clean electricity regulation, you know, fundamentally, we're arguing about five years, right? The federal regulation talks essentially forces near net zero by 2045. Premier Smith is saying, well, no, we absolutely can't do that. 2050 is the right number. Right. You know, if that's the gap we got to close, that's pretty easy. And, you know, looking around the world today, if that's our the worst policy chasm we have to close, we're in pretty good shape. And, you know, I think the same thing is true. We talk about Trudeau, um, and certainly there's, there's no love for Prime Minister Trudeau uh, or very little in southern Alberta. But, you know, when you think about this is a prime minister who will have led to the construction of the first major pipeline expansion to the West Coast in, you know, five decades, basically. And... So if the distance we have is the distance between, you know, the Calgary oil and gas CEO and the prime minister who built the pipeline or enabled the pipeline construction of the West Coast, we're not as far off as, as maybe some of the rhetoric would lead us to believe. Well, we'll leave it on a, a cheerful note. The book is called Between Doom and Denial. The event is happening tomorrow at Studio Bell. Andrew Leach will be in conversation with Calgary Chamber CEO Deborah Yedlin. There's going to be a Q&A as well. It's happening, as mentioned, tomorrow at Studio Bell. Andrew, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Looking forward to seeing everyone tomorrow night. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Andrew Leach, energy and environmental economist, professor at the University of Alberta, author of Between Doom and Denial. And so uh, he will be delivering the McGill Max Bell Lecture Series this year, the event happening tomorrow night here in Calgary. Uh, more details at uh, McGill.ca. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Ridge with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. You can reach us at 403-974-8255-974-TALK. A lot more still to get to here this afternoon. We'll get some of your phone calls uh, coming up after 1.30. But up the top in this hour, there's been a lot of talk about the impact of short-term rentals on the overall rental market or really the overall housing market. Like if we've got properties that are basically designated to be short-term rentals... That kind of takes them out of the equation when it comes to the overall housing stock. And if there's less supply, doesn't that mean higher prices? I mean, on top of that, we've seen a couple of, of trends in recent years. We've seen, obviously, an increase in housing prices, an increase in rents. And we've seen an increase in, in listings on sites like Airbnb. But is that a causal relationship? And basically, are these short-term rentals increasing the cost of housing? Now, there's increased focus on this. I mean, Calgary right now is in the process of reviewing some of the regulations around short-term rentals. B.C. has just brought in legislation aimed at cracking down on this. Now, the federal government, in applauding what B.C. is doing, has said that they're going to look at what they might be able to do under their jurisdiction uh, to deal with this as well. 
So what does the evidence tell us about the impact of short-term rentals? Well, as it happens, there's a, a new study from the Conference Board of Canada that takes a look at this specific question and finds that uh, sites like Airbnb generate no meaningful increase in rent across Canada. Uh, so joining us uh, now to talk more about this is the uh, author of the report. Uh, Tony Bonin is uh, Director of Economic Research at the Conference Board of Canada, conferenceboard.ca. Tony, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. All right. So give us a bit more then on, on the, the background here of what it was you were looking at and, and why you felt this was something that needed to be scrutinized cl more closely. Yeah, I, I think you set up the question we were trying to tackle quite well, which is this question around, is there a causal relation between short-term rentals, which are growing in frequency across the country, no doubt, mm -hmm. with the increase that we've seen in rent? So we worked with Airbnb to use their record-level data. So, in fact, this is the first report of its kind where we're using data directly from Airbnb rather than scrape from their website and so on to try and look at exactly what's happening at the neighborhood level and compare the degree of Airbnb activity against uh, data from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and their, their rental prices. We see a very clear correlation, and it's a very meaningful, statistically significant correlation between Airbnb activity and rental price increases. But once we got down to that neighborhood level and were able to control for neighborhood-specific factors like a downtown core has mm -hmm. more Airbnbs and rents have been increasing there more quickly, once you can control for those neighborhood-level effects, we can't find any causal explanation coming from Airbnb activity itself in explaining why rents have been increasing so much in recent years. Right. So you come up with a number here. So we've seen about a 30% increase in, in rents uh, since 2016 in this period you looked at. But you say of that, at most, less than one percentage point could be attributed to Airbnb activity. Yeah, that's right. And over that same period, so over the, the um, 2016 to 2022 period we were looking at, Airbnb activity, I mean, frankly, exploded in Canada. It went from a fairly new entrant into the market and short-term rentals and increased roughly threefold in terms of these high-use, high-frequency rentals. But even with that increase, Airbnb's overall footprint in the stock of housing is relatively small as of today. And so it just isn't a large enough piece of the overall stock of housing to really be impacting prices. And that's the main explanation for why we, we had this result, which I'll say, frankly, we were surprised by. We were expecting to see some causal relationship, but couldn't find anything, no matter how we tested the data, really. And that's interesting. And I think it does fly in the face of a lot of assumptions that are driving some of this debate. So why, why do you think then so many of these, these assumptions get it wrong? So a lot of the data that's out there, a lot of the existing research is quite in line with what we have found. The big difference is that the variation in rents and the variation Airbnb activity is really across geographies. There's big differences between, say, downtown Calgary and like Red Deer, for example, right. as opposed to over time. The, the changes over time aren't as big as cross-sectionally, as we say, or across geographies. 
And because we had this really localized data, we were able to start controlling for that. And that's something other studies haven't been able to do. And so they end up looking more so at the changes over time. And if you look at changes over time, you're more look likely to pick up this correlation, increase in rents and Airbnb activity, rather than discerning what's happening at that individual level. And, and I will add just that we did look at changes over time as well as changes across different geographies. So we had both dimensions there, but it, it was a result of the large amount of data that we had, uh, 330 neighborhoods in, our, in the model we used. What's different in Quebec? Uh, this report finds that Quebec's a, a bit of an exception here, that there was a more measurable impact uh, of, of Airbnb. Yeah, so because we weren't able to find a clear causal link, we, we cut the data in a number of different ways. And one way we cut the data was to look at province-specific effects. And here, we didn't see any effects in, in Alberta or BC, but in Quebec, we did find a, a meaningful, that is statistically significant relationship. The main explanation we have is the, the prevalence of Airbnb in some of the downtown neighborhoods in, in Quebec City and, and Montreal, uh, where it has, you know, an outsized share, particularly downtown Quebec, because it's such a tourist destination. There's a lot of interest to, to stay there. Um, but given that we didn't see any kind of um, causal relations like that in other provinces, we didn't think that was a huge impact. And indeed, even in Quebec, that effect, that meaningful effect we saw there is relatively small in terms of magnitude. Right. So overall, and I mean, you know, with with the um, maybe what's a, a disproportionate focus in terms of what we're getting from policymakers, that if we're concerned about housing affordability, that a focus on, on short-term rentals, uh, it's not likely to yield any kind of measurable impact there. That's correct. Right now, for the level of short-term rentals, and, and I should clarify, we are looking just at Airbnb, so not other sure. um, short-term rental organizations. Airbnb is certainly the largest. Um, at today's level of activity, it's just not that big. We estimated that, on average, Airbnb represents about half a percent of the overall stock of housing in Canadian cities. That's not a big section of the supply of housing. When CMHC, for example, suggests we need to increase housing supply by 30% over the next decade to bring affordability back back to the housing market. Right. And, and I guess even if we look at the, the total number, if we just look at Airbnb listings, um, are, are you focusing on those that are sort of full-time Airbnb listings? Because there's an important distinction, I guess, between someone who rents out the property that they also live in and some of these units that are almost permanent Airbnb listings. Yeah, that's right. So, and this is consistent with the other literature that's out there. By looking at those homes that have been rented out for more than 30 nights in the past three months, that's what we call air, high use Airbnbs. And that's what we focused on in our data. And that effectively rules out places that people rent out when they go away for a long weekend. These yeah, are really okay. places dedicated to those short term rentals. All right. Very interesting. Much more at conferenceboard.ca. Tony, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Uh, Tony Bonand, uh, Director of Economic Research at the Conference Board of Canada, author of this report. So even coming as a bit of a surprise to them that there doesn't seem to be a big impact. So looking at the period from 2016 to 2022, rents over that period increased. Airbnb listings over that period increased. So was there a causal relationship? What they find based on their research is that of the 30%, the 30% average increase in rents, at most, less than one percentage point of that can be attributed to Airbnb activity.
so bed bugs. Uh, bed bugs are, are gross. Uh, people get uh, very queasy when we talk about bed bugs. You know, bed bugs, I mean, mosquitoes also feed on, on our blood. I mean, bed bugs aren't the only insects that do that. But I think the idea that they're hiding, they're lurking uh, under the surface, they attack us when we're sleeping, like they violate us by crawling under our covers and doing this to us uh, while we sleep. Maybe that kind of bothers us. Maybe that makes it a, a little more creepy. Uh, and the weird thing, too, bed bugs, they don't fly. They don't even really jump. Like, not only do we provide them sustenance, we move them around. We help spread them. Uh, so bed bugs are a problem, and we're kind of a part of that problem. Uh, but we would just as soon avoid them. Right. And so when we hear about bed bugs. It, it gets a lot of attention. There's some stories in, in August and into September. There had been a number of Las Vegas casinos where there'd been complaints or they'd had issues with bed bugs. But maybe the biggest story or the most headlines have come out of Paris, where it seems like there's been a, a real crisis there. I mean, Paris is a big city, a lot of people coming and going from Paris. I mean, you know, they got the Summer Olympics coming up there next year. So uh, folks there are concerned about the problem of bed bugs. It's become a political controversy. It's also become, uh, according to uh, French intelligence, uh, a source of uh, disinformation. Uh, French intelligence believe that uh, Russian troll farms have been trying to contribute to the panic by spreading fake stories about bed bugs. So definitely there's a lot more interest in the topic. Searches for bed bugs are up substantially, but our actual bed bug numbers. Is there a crisis uh, unfolding here? Well, joining us to talk more about it is someone who's a bit of an expert in this field. Mark Johnson is a biology professor at the University of Toronto and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so you specialize in, you know, urban insects, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. So this is an area you study closely. Have you noticed any substantial changes uh, over the last few years or even over the last, say, five or ten years? So if we go back to the last 20 years, there has been a steady uptick in the abundance of bed bugs compared to post-World War II, where they became... Um, very, very rare. But over the last five years, and particularly in the last few years, the, the abundance is not substantially greater than it was five years ago. Or, um, and in fact, there is some evidence that it dipped during the pandemic because people weren't moving around as much. Right. So the, the um, current obsession in the media with this is more uh, with media and social media hype as opposed to actual data. Yeah, which is encouraging, I guess, in a way, but it also speaks to an interesting preoccupation we have with bed bugs. Um, it, does it seem disproportionate to you? Well, you know, people are certainly concerned about bed bugs for the reasons that you mentioned. There are things that we can't readily see. They suck our blood. We're often fearful of things that, that suck our blood. They, importantly, bed bugs do not carry any known human diseases uh, so that's a good thing but they do cause a lot of uh, discomfort so yeah. when they do in fact infest an area and they do bite people you know that can be quite itchy and could be quite uncomfortable but it also creates just a lot of stress in individuals knowing that 
they have uh, a bed bug infestation potentially. You know, no one likes. Uh, there's a stigma associated with that, and, right. and it used to be thought that bed bugs would uh, infest areas with kind of low economic areas, and, and really they don't discriminate at this point. They get into wherever they can, whether it be in um, places of uh, that have lower economic areas or higher economic areas. They will go where they travel. Um, and so they're they're not very discriminating, but they're largely a nuisance. They're not really a, a public health concern, though, other than the the um, the itching that they cause when they they do infest and bite. So it does seem like they they, they have an issue right now in Paris. Um, but what's your sense of what's going on in Paris right now? Yeah, my sense is that there are there was some well publicized uh, newspaper articles. There was a a politician who brought in a vial full of dead bed bugs and so it's the issue that they're having is more hype than actual fact yeah. there are bed bugs in paris for sure but there's also bed bugs in in toronto in london in calgary in vancouver you know there are bed bugs in a lot of places now and and you know trying to understand why they've increased is is important and and how we can control them is also important but the the hype that's happening right now is a little overblown. It's it's I, I would from the what I understand, Paris is not worse than other cities. Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean Paris is a tourist destination. Las Vegas, which I mentioned, is a tourist destination. So when you got a lot of people traveling to and from a location like that, that can contribute to this, right? I mean, bed bugs they catch a ride with us. Absolutely. As you mentioned, they don't fly around. Um, they walk around. They get into people's luggage. They can get into people's clothes. They can get into people's furniture. So if you know furniture is, is being sold or, or used furniture is being traded, then it can travel that way. But I think the way it mostly travels, bed bugs today, is through people traveling, as you're mentioning. So as you go from a hotel, if bed bugs get into your luggage and then you go home, they can move that way. Um, and they like to find little dark uh, crevices where they can hide and they're not easily seen. And so you won't notice it at first until they start start biting you when they get into wherever you're staying. Uh, they can be tough to kill. That's part of the challenge, too, as I understand. And we've seen, you know, where they've developed some resistance to some insecticides. Uh, you know, you need a little more extreme hot or cold conditions to, to really do them in. So is, is that part of the challenge then? And, and once you, you've got a situation, what do you do about it? Yeah, that's definitely part of the challenge. So post-World War II, uh, there was a lot of use of insecticides to control bed bugs, and they were very, very effective. Things like DDT. Um, more uh, recently, they've been using different pyrethroids um, to control them, especially delta methrin. And these were extremely effective, killing virtually all of the bed bugs. But at some point, um, a bed bug arose that had a genetic mutation that made it resistant to some of these insecticides, and they passed on their genes to their progeny because they were not being killed as effectively as the other ones. Right. And through time, they've they've gathered a number of um, different mutations that allow them to resist a variety of these insecticides that are being applied. So there's multiple ways in which they can evade the conventional insecticide 
um, methods. And that's one of the, the reasons, that's part of the story about why they've increased in abundance. So we started seeing an uptick in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and it's been kind of a steady uptick till about the pandemic, and then it, it dipped down, and, and, and it's, it's resurging um, to where it was pre-pandemic levels because mm-hmm. people are moving around again. Um, and so the control aspect is definitely related to this insecticide resistance that has built up. You know, in an early study in in about 2010, they found in the United States, 88% of all the individuals uh, had some level of resistance to insecticides. And that oh. was 2010. We're 13 years on. And so most bed bugs that you see now will have some level of resistance to these insecticides. So we need to use other methods for controlling them as well. Like you mentioned, if you go to Health Canada, they recommend using steam cleaning, uh, vacuuming with HEPA filters, but then you also have to, to, to wash clothes. And, and if you can put some smaller items in freezers, all of these are kind of a, a broad um, mechanism of defense against bed bugs. Some good advice, some important information. We'll leave it there. Professor Johnson, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Much Thank appreciate you. It. Have a great day. All the best. Uh, that's biologist uh, Mark Johnson, the University of Toronto, runs the Evo Eco Lab, evoeco.org. There's done a lot of research on urbanization and insects. So basically saying there's a lot of panic right now, uh, unnecessary panic around bed bugs. Even in Paris, he seems, his sense is it seems as though people are kind of freaking out. And it's uh, disproportionate, uh, at least in, in terms of the actual situation. So it's easy to, to stir up emotion around this. Like, it seems like an icky topic. You know, people just don't want to have to deal with this. Again, I mean, some of it is just our own kind of sense of what creeps us out. Yeah, it's it's an insect that bites us and consumes our blood, but people don't react the same way to mosquitoes, right? So it, it's different. Mosquitoes, I guess, are easier to kill, maybe. But I think even just the size or the shape of mosquitoes, I, I think it's something about what a bed bug looks like, too. I mean, they're pretty small. So he said, look, they don't spread diseases. You're not in danger if you get a, a bed bug bite, but, you know, they can be tricky to deal with. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.